0: Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. It's true that the top 1% of wealthy Americans have reaped most of the benefits of economic growth in recent years. But it's also true that a growing percentage of wealthy Americans, in the spirit of Andrew Carnegie or John D. Rockefeller, have become leading philanthropists, giving more and more of their wealth away to good causes. And one of the leading new American philanthropists is David Rubenstein founder of the Carlyle Group, who has devoted much of his fortune to what he calls patriotic philanthropy in Washington, among other institutions. Rubenstein's a leading benefactor of the Kennedy Center, the Library of Congress, the Smithsonian Museums, the Washington Mall and Washington Monument, and the National Zoo. He also hosts his own interview show on Bloomberg Television and recently published a fascinating collection of his interviews with outstanding Americans called The American Experiment. Recently, David Rubenstein sat down for his own interview with me at Washington's Hill Center on Capitol Hill. David, it's wonderful to see you, and I want to congratulate you on his latest uh, three books, I believe, The American Experiment, Dialogues on a Dream. The book is just out, so it is, pardon the pun, hot off the press. It is a wonderful collection of interviews and conversations with some of the most interesting and important people in America, and their reflections on the American dream. Is it still alive today? What it means to be an American today? What are the challenges facing America? Uh, I've had a chance these the last few days to read many, many of the interviews uh, and highly recommend it again. So of all the interesting people in the book, I think you're as interesting, if not more interesting, than any of these other people. Uh, I don't think so, but thank you. Uh, that are here. So, um, David started with a book. I'd like to get to the book and start a little bit about talking about David Rubenstein. We have had here at the, hill, at the Talk of the hill bishops and nuns and senators and members of Congress and chefs. Uh, we've never had a billionaire, though, so, at first. <laughs>
1: um, a billion isn't what it used to be, but, uh, I would say, uh, you know, you have people worth $200 billion, so, uh, you know, it isn't what it used to be, and it's, uh, I'm giving it all away anyway, so I'm gonna be dead when I'll have no money.
0: <laughs> what, um, you certainly didn't make that working in the Senate as a staffer for Senator Birch You didn't make that at the White House for Jimmy Carter. Um, Where'd you uh, climb the ladder to, to that height? Well,
1: um, to be honest, I, you know, as some of you may know, I came from very modest circumstances in Baltimore. My father and mother did not graduate from college or high school. My father worked in the post office. And it's actually a great uh, way to grow up, because if you know you've got to make it on your own, you, you probably are more driven. So I am more driven probably than my children are driven, because they've grown up in a wealthier setting, uh, though they are reasonably driven. I would say that um, I got lucky in life. I. I got scholarships to Duke and University of Chicago Law School. I practiced law, went to, got a job in the White House, very lucky to get that. And then I was probably, when we lost the election to Ronald Reagan, I thought, how could we lose this election? I told President Carter, you're running against an old, old man. He's 69. He won't be able to get a bed in the morning. He's so <laughs> old. Now I'm 72, so 69 seems like a teenager. But I, I didn't think we could lose. And then people used to come to me and say, David, you're a brilliant young man. If you want a job, call me up. Well, I said, I'm going to be here in the second term. I'm going to be the senior domestic advisor in the second term. So why would I want a job? Then I decided uh, when we lost the election, I better call these people up because I needed a job. And none of them ever called me back because, you know, who wants a person out of power? Who knows, who cares what the Carter administration is thinking when Reagan's president? So I actually had, took me six months to find a job because nobody wanted to hire, you know, a Carter White House aide. And um, I didn't want to tell my mother that her only child was unemployable. So I kept saying I had so many offers, I didn't know which one to take. And, <laughs> I don't know. After about six months of that, she said, David, just take one of them. So I, I went back, and I practiced law, and I was pretty clear I wasn't a good lawyer. My clients didn't think I was good. I knew I wasn't that good. So I decided to try something different. I started a private equity firm in Washington when nobody knew what private equity was, and it grew to be one of the largest in the world, and I got lucky, and we made money, and I signed the giving pledge. I was an original signer, and so I'm giving away all of my money, and I've given away Lots of it already, and a lot of it in Washington D.C. for things that you're probably familiar
0: with. And I, I want to talk about some of those things. But uh, so you obviously made a lot of smart investment decisions along the way. Did you make any bad ones?
1: Every day. <laughs> um, you know, my worst one was uh, my now son-in-law uh, when he was at Harvard College, dating my oldest daughter. Said there's a, his roommate from uh, from uh, Exeter and his classmate at Harvard. Was going to start a company and it was called Facebook and would I like to invest in it? I said that's a dating service. I don't never get anywhere. So I turned that down. Um, and then one time we had a uh, an opportunity to to help a guy named start a company. He was going to sell books over the internet. Um, it was Jeff Bezos, and you know we got some stock and I didn't think it was going to be worth very much, so we sold it pretty quickly. And then another young guy showed up in, in our office from college. Uh, Just out of college, he was starting a new company to navigate the Internet. And I said, well, what's the Internet, and why would I want to navigate it? And this was uh, Mark Andreessen, and he started Netscape, which later sold to AOL. So I've turned down a lot of uh, companies I shouldn't have, and I've made a lot of bad bad decisions. But,
0: you know, that's life. Donald Graham came to you at one point and said, how would you like to buy the Washington Post?
1: Yeah, I knew Don reasonably well. He sat down with me for breakfast at the Four Seasons and said, David, I'd like you to buy the Washington Post. And I said, uh, well, Don, uh, you know, it's got some problems, not making any money. But he explained what the deal was, and that was a deal where you bought three things. You bought the newspaper, the real estate company, the real estate that the newspaper was in on uh, at, that, at that time, and then there was an online company that he said was worth about $300 million. So As I recall, he said it was a $650 million purchase price. I had, didn't negotiate, but that was what he asked for, $650 million. $300 million was the value of the online company, 100 and Million or so was the value of the real estate, and the newspaper was the rest. And I said no, I didn't want to do that. I thought the newspaper was going to go south, and I would be laying people off. It turned out that they sold the online company for about 500 million. They sold the real estate for about 175 million. So I could have bought the whole thing for practically nothing. But I, but Jeff Bezos is obviously richer, smarter, more technically savvy to me, so <laughs> they're, they're they're better off without me.
0: You mentioned giving your money away. You belong to a group called the uh, to the Giving Pledge. Right. How many people are in it? And are, do you, I, I'm curious, do you get together and decide how you're going to d- give your money well, away, to which causes? or
1: The idea was really generated by Warren Buffett, Bill Gates and uh, Melinda Gates. And Bill came to see me in my office in Washington and talked about it. I had lunch in my office and with Bill and, you know, he had a cheeseburger and french fries. It didn't seem like he was eating healthy food or anything. But he he told me about this, and I said I was going to give away my money anyway, so I'm happy to sign this. This says essentially that if you have a net worth of a billion dollars, you agree to basically give away half of your net worth upon your death or during your lifetime. Now, it's a voluntary thing. So if you never give away any money, but you say you're going to give it away upon your death and you don't do it upon your death, there's nothing they can do. They can't disinter you. So, um, so, but it's a voluntary thing. And, and we had 40 initially. I was one of the 40 uh, initial signers. And there were two others, I think, in the Washington area initially. Roger Sant and Steve Case were mm-hmm. the others who were initial signers. And then uh, we now have probably about 210 or so of them, mostly in the United States because people in the United States are more committed to this. When we ask people in China or Russia whether they want to give away fifty percent of their net worth, they think they look like you, like you're crazy. But um, so uh, today um, uh, we, we meet once a year. Obviously, because of COVID, we've had to meet uh, virtually. We meet once a year, but it's not designed to say, "Look, here's my favorite charity and or my philanthropic thing. You should give money to mine. I'll give money to yours." We don't do that. Just educate people about the challenges of money and so forth. And the biggest problem I have with the giving pledge is. Well, I think it's good. It it focuses on the need for philanthropy. There there are two things I want to emphasize. Philanthropy is derived from an ancient Greek word that means loving humanity. It doesn't mean rich people writing checks. So you can be a philanthropist, in my view, by giving the most valuable thing you have, which is your time. And so more people have time than they have money. And and time is something you can never get back. You can always make more money if you're in in that business world. So I encourage people to give away their, their time. In fact, when de Tocqueville came over in the 1830s and wrote about the United States, what he observed was that people were spending all their time volunteering. He... He couldn't get anybody to interview mm-hmm. because they were all volunteering for things. Because we have this tradition in the United States of volunteering and helping out. And second point is, you don't need to be worth a billion dollars to be a philanthropist who gives away money. You can give away money at any level. In fact, my mother, who I would give as much money to as she would take, she didn't want money because she just didn't want to be rich. Um, after she passed away, I found... For the next couple of years, I was getting um, letters from every organization in America that she was giving money to. She would give $5, $10, $15, $25. She never said no to any request, And she was, in my view, a philanthropist. She was giving away all of her money, but in $5 and ten million from five and $10 checks, basically. And I still get these letters from people that say, how come you haven't given in the last couple of years? You used to give $5 every year. Now you're not giving any money. So um, I do think that it's important to encourage younger people, and particularly all people, Give away something or do something as a philanthropist younger in your life, and you don't have to be a billionaire to give away money or to give away your time. Just do something to make the country better, and I think you'll feel better for doing that.
0: It's in your genes.
1: Well, I think it's part of our our genes in our country because we are a country that's the most philanthropic in the world. Uh, Roughly 2% of the GDP of this country is given away each year. No other country is even close to that. And I would say that... uh, we, we have a tradition of this doing this in this country. When the country was started, we didn't have wealth and therefore people had to volunteer, people had to contribute to create a library, to create a fire department, to create a hospital. And that tradition has continued and it's really a tradition that you don't see anywhere else in the world quite this level.
0: And your focus for which we are all grateful has been particularly on Washington DC and what makes Washington great. I just want to read a quick list of and institutions which I know of that you have very generously supported. They include the Kennedy Center, your chairman of the board there still, the Washington Monument, the Library of Congress, the National Archives, the Jefferson Memorial, Mount Vernon, Monticello, the Lincoln Memorial, the National Gallery of Art, the Smithsonian, the uh, White House Historical Association, which I'm a member of, the National Zoo, and the Panda Programme. I mean, thank you, David Rubenstein, right? Well,
1: um, that, uh, uh, look, I, I, I felt sorry for the pandas because, uh, um, you know, the pandas have problems. They can't reproduce very well. We have to help them.
0: But, but this focus, what drives that focus? You, I, I heard you this morning, you referred to it as patriotic philanthropy.
1: Well, I called it that because what I meant by it is not to say that other philanthropy isn't patriotic. But I was trying to use that phrase to, to connote giving back in a way that reminds people of the history and heritage of our country, the good and the bad. So for example, I put up the money to re- redo the uh, Arlington Memorial, or Arlington House at the top of Arlington Cemetery. It's officially called the Custis Lee Mansion, the official wa- uh, national monument to Robert E. Lee. I tried to get them to change that. I just called it Arlington House. But I wanted to have that done because I wanted people to see not how Robert E. Lee lived, but how slaves lived in those days because we rebuilt the slave quarters there, and also to show people that despite the bad things in some of our history, we should learn it. We can't just erase our history. We should learn more about it. And the challenge is really this. Right now, uh, we don't teach history and civics very much in our uh, courses that much, and as a result, people don't know that much about our history and our civics. Uh, A very famous Harvard philosopher once said, those people that don't remember history are condemned to relive it. And therefore, we're going to make our mistakes over and over again. And the theory of the representative democracy is if you have an informed citizenry, you can have a good democracy. If you don't have an informed citizenry, you're not going to have a good democracy. So for example, a naturalized American citizen has to take a citizenship test. You have to be here in this, this country for five years. It's changed the, over the years. Initially, when the country first started, anybody could show up. There were no passport, passports, no visas, anybody could show up. But then when people who were not Western Europeans started showing up, Eastern Europeans, people were Jewish, Asians started showing up. You know, we, we put some laws in that constrain that, and it became more difficult to get into this country. Now it's a little bit easier than it was in the 1920s and 30s. But the point is that if you come in this country after five years as a citizen, as a, as a resident, you can you take a citizenship test. There are 100 potential questions. You, you're asked 10 of the 100 potential, and you have to get six right. If you're 65 or older, they tell you exactly which 10 questions. So it's not (laughs) that difficult. Um, 91% of the people that take this test as prospective citizens pass. 91%. The same test was given what was then called the Woodrow Wilson Fellowship Foundation to um, 22 million Americans. And those 22 million Americans all were native-born in all 50 states. and only one state, Vermont, could a majority of citizens pass the basic citizenship test. And the test includes things like what are the three branches of our government? Who's the first president of the United States? So, we don't really know that much, and my theory is by reminding people of the history and heritage, it's a good thing. Now, why? how am I doing that? Well, this is the main point i will finished with. We know what's in the Declaration of Independence. We know what's in the Magna Carta. We know who George Washington is. We know what his house looked like. Why do we have to keep these official monuments to them? Why do we have to keep restore their houses? Why do we have to preserve the documents? Because it turns out that the human brain still learns more when you see something that's official, that is authentic. So if I said here's the words of the Declaration of Independence, you can look it up online. It's not the same experience as if you go to the archives and you see the original copy, you're more likely before you go there to study it. When you're there, you're going to learn about it, and afterwards you're going to talk about it and learn more. So that's why we should preserve these things, so maybe it'll help us learn more about our history and if we learn more about our history, maybe we'll have a better country.
0: And jumping into the book right. for a second, this is something you talked about with Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Yes. It's a passion for her uh, that, uh, again, um, civics isn't taught in most well, schools, um, or high schools.
1: Justice O'Connor, when she retired, uh, she retired to take care of her husband who had Alzheimer's. And um, she also spent some time, because she'd sensed this when she was a justice, that we don't teach civics very much anymore. So she joined and really kind of breathed new life into an organization called iCivics, which is designed to um, educate young children through the use of video games and so forth about civics. And Justice Sotomayor, when Justice O'Connor couldn't do that any longer, um, she's has Alzheimer's now herself, um, The uh, Justice Sotomayor um, basically went on the board of iCivics, and and I've, I've supported that organization as well. And it's a very good organization. And... Justice Sotomayor and I talked at, at uh, about the importance of civics and civic education in the book.
0: Right. Uh, she, um, as I recall from your interview, where she says that we all have a patriotic duty to learn about our government and then to participate and to get involved.
1: Yes, I think so. I mean, look, what's the theory of our, our country's um, democracy? It's that you're going to be involved. You're going to be involved by voting or other kinds of things, and I think it's very important that we vote. Unfortunately, many people don't vote. In the last presidential election, 62% of the eligible voters voted. In most presidential elections, it's not higher than 55%. In non-presidential elections, it's way below 50%, and sometimes you get people voting less than 10% in some primaries in in, in local elections. So I think it's important that you vote, because if you don't vote, you have very little ability to affect the outcome. People do believe that voting makes a difference, and it does make a difference, as we've seen uh, a few votes here and there could make a big difference. In the last election, 55,000 votes, had they been different in four different states, Donald Trump would have been reelected.
0: I remember uh, when I was covering the White House, when President Obama was in the White House, someone asked him what he thought the, what the most important problem facing the country was, and he said income inequality. Uh, breaking news this week, the president of China adopted said he was adopting a new program to create what he called common prosperity in China to get everybody, you know, everybody, not everybody on the same level, but to reduce the gap. Do you see that as a serious problem facing the country? And what can we do about it?
1: I'd say it's one of the biggest problems this country has is income inequality. But there are two things, they're they're twins. Income inequality means that the gap between the upper and the lower is is getting bigger and bigger. Um, That's a big problem. And it's gotten worse because of COVID. Because people that aren't educated, people that often work with their hands, they were laid off, Many of them couldn't uh, get the kind of financial aid they needed. And the result is that many of them have fallen further and further behind, particularly young people and children who aren't in, in, in school for the last year or so. They had to deal things with remotely. In some cases, they don't have broadband. In some cases, they don't have Internet access. In some cases, they don't have computers. So mm-hmm. they really fell behind. But the twin of that is social mobility. Now, I believed as a young boy growing up in a modest income family that I the American dream really existed, and I could work hard and get to the top. Many people don't believe that anymore, and particularly people born in this country. The American dream, ironically, is something that people from overseas believe more, and they come here for that reason. There are 46 million people in this country who have immigrated. They didn't come here because they thought there was no American dream. They thought if they came here, they have a great chance to do better than they are in their own country. And now, many people born in this country, particularly African Americans or Latinos, do not think that they have a chance to rise to the top because there is a lack of social mobility, There's a, there's a, there are a lot of other uh, endemic problems. Let me just cite one of them I talked about this morning. Um, right now, 14% of the people in this country, adults, are functionally illiterate. They can't read past the fourth grade level. If you can't read past the fourth grade level, you have no chance of really rising up in society. 67% of the people in our juvenile delinquency system are, are uh, more or less functionally illiterate, and about 80% of the people in our federal prison system are functionally illiterate. If you can't read, you have no chance of solving this problem. So we've got to do much more to get people to learn how to read.
0: Uh, one final question before we get into some of the interviews in the book. The United States, the Treasury Department, released a report um, saying, showing that the top 1% of Americans legally evade $163 billion a year in taxes. Should wealthy Americans pay more higher a higher rate of taxes than they're paying today?
1: Well, I think they, they probably should, and they probably will, as a result of the legislation that's going to go through. <laughs> and you know, I'd say, you know, I paid hundreds of millions of dollars in taxes. I, maybe I can pay more. It's not going to change my lifestyle. But the, you can take the net worth of the richest people in the country and take it all away. It's not going to solve the problem of people can't read. It's not going to solve the education problem. The problem is you've got to get people at the bottom of the social and economic strata to learn how to... Be good citizens. Learn how to read. Learn how to get educated. We still have um, millions of people every year dropping into high school. You drop into high school, what are your chances really of, of getting to the top? It's, it's, it's difficult. So, yes, the net worth of high, uh, look, somebody, there are a couple people in the United States who are now worth $100 billion. And there are two, I think, are now worth $200 billion. Oh, but let's suppose you took that $200 billion away from Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk. How is that really going to solve all of our problems? It's not when the federal budget deficit is three and a half trillion dollars a year. So I'm not against taxing people more than we're currently being taxed, but we shouldn't think that's going to solve all our problems.
0: Um, I'll break my own rule. I'll ask you one final question on that. When I looked at this list of all the organizations that you sponsored, unlike Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and Richard Branson, I didn't see any spaceship. (laughs) Uh, I didn't see the
1: uh, David Rubenstein
0: uh, blast into space.
1: I, I didn't do that, but I I, uh, I was the chairman of the Smithsonian for a number of years, and I did support their redo of the Air and Space Museum. That is the most popular museum in Washington, and Jeff Bezos just gave $200 million more than I gave uh, for uh, the rehab. It's an interesting thing, and it shows you how Washington operates. It opened in 1976 for the 200th anniversary of their country's history. It cost $40 million to open. Michael Collins, who passed away recently, one of the people who went to the the moon on the on the on the historic uh, Apollo 11 flight. He was um, the first director. Forty million dollars built the GSA specs. And then it turns out recently the walls are crumbling down, and the walls were built to GSA specs and they weren't very good. You know you have to wonder the pyramids were not built to GSA specs. They've been around for, for thousands of years. They are, they're not falling apart. But this is falling apart. So it's now costing a billion. It about a billion dollars to fix it. We've largely raised the money, not completely. Congress has been very generous. And so Jeff did give uh, a great deal of money to it. Um, I I don't have my own spaceship program, though.
0: No, okay. (laughs) Well, building his own spaceship may be the only national project David Rubenstein's not involved in, (laughs) at least not yet. Again, we're talking today on The Bill Press Pod with billionaire philanthropist David Rubenstein. Let's take a quick break. Then we'll talk to David about some of the leading Americans he interviewed for his new book. Today's podcast brought to you by the American Federation of teachers the a f t under President Randy Weingarten, one point seven million teachers, men and women of America doing God's work every day in the classroom pre pre k k through twelve and higher education as well they're the ones who have been meeting Covid head on uh, first on the online classes for over a year and now back in the classroom where they're keeping our kids safe and themselves safe by wearing a mask and making sure the kids do too. We salute America's teachers, members of the AFT. Thank them for their great work and thank them for their support of the Bill Press pod.
1: Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free?
0: Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Haven also hosts his own interview show on Bloomberg TV and recently gathered many interviews he's conducted with the leading Americans in a new book called The American Experiment. Uh, The book, The American Experiment, Dialogues uh, on a Dream, the American Dream, of course, Overall, what did you find, that the American dream is still alive, still uh, inspiring well, people to they come here and better themselves here?
1: The phrase was invented in 1936 uh, by somebody who was commenting on what was people believed in in America, and it was really based a lot on uh, the kind of perception of Horatio Alger stories. Horatio Alger was a writer um, who wrote stories about young boys and one girl who rose to the top in, in their adult um, in their adulthood, um, and so that's always been part of our ethos. And interestingly, you don't hear of the Greek dream, the uh, the Mongolian dream, the <laughs> Bolivian dream, because in many of these societies, you are born in a certain uh, caste and you don't rise up, and people don't expect to rise up. In this country, we have invented the idea that you can start at the bottom and you can rise to the top. Now, many people don't subscribe to that now, but the people that most subscribe to it are people that are immigrants into this country, because they believe in it, and actually, they, they've turned out to be, to be true. One third of the companies in Silicon Valley are now run by uh, immigrants, immigrants from India, um, which is nothing wrong with that. But I'm just saying that these immigrants have come in. They've, they've built companies. They're running companies. And you know we have really great immigrants from all over the world. No People people in this country are not rushing to leave the country. There's no other country where people are saying, I really want to get into this country. People in this country are not rushing to immigrate to China. Or Russia people are rushing to get into this country because it's a place where there is opportunity Though it's obviously challenging for some people that that have you know racial and other uh, discrimination against them But it's clearly the American dream lives, but I think it Unfortunately, it lives more for people that are immigrating to the country than people that are born in the country
0: In your introduction to the book you cite 13 genes or values basically that make up uh, the greatness uh, of this country uh, including democracy equality freedom of speech freedom of religion right to vote, you find that right to vote to what's happening today in state after state um, troubling you? It does trouble me
1: because the right to vote is an important part of our, 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 our franchise and our, and our government. Though I have to point out, when the country was set up, the rhetoric was a lot better than the reality. So the rhetoric is all men are created equal. Well, we didn't really, you know, let everybody be equal. And also we had no women in, who were allowed to vote either. And I point out in the book, in one of the interviews, that the right to vote for women didn't occur until 1920, and many women actually opposed it, including Eleanor Roosevelt for a while. Many people thought, why should we be bothered with this tawdry thing that men deal with? We should, we're should we too nice for that. But in the, end, in the end, ultimately, it happened, but it wasn't easy to get it done. I, I do think that uh, the right to vote is one of the sacred things of a democracy. And I don't think there's anybody that thinks that if you have one place in Harris County and in uh, in uh, Texas Texas. to drop off your your ballot that that's adequate to give you the ability to uh, have a a kind of a mail-in ballot I mean obviously we know what's going on what's going on is there some people who have the view that they are losing the uh, effort to win minority voters and or or people who are not white older voters and as they, they they see those voters going away because they're dying off and they're not uh, re, uh, populating themselves as much rapidly as minorities are. They are—they don't have the ability to win elections unless there's redistricting or other kinds of laws like this. So I am very upset about it. I think it's unfortunate that that's getting done, and it's, it's, it's a travesty in many ways.
0: Uh, I was struck at reading this list of 13 genes, as you call them, or qualities that bring us together. And I mentioned democracy, equality, you, you t- freedom of speech, freedom of religion, the right to vote. You talk about those positive attributes. No mention of systemic racism on that list.
1: Well, I address the issues of racism by many uh, interviews I have in the book. Right. I had a great interview, I think, with Skip Gates. Talked about uh, the reconstruction, the challenges there. And but a very, it is
0: kind of a cloud, that hang, do you find, well, that hangs over everything else?
1: I think I didn't use the phrase systemic racism, but I do think that it's clear from all the interviews that I did that I recognize that we have this racial problem in our country. And look, that was the original sin of this country. When the country was set up, um, if had we tried to eliminate slavery at the beginning, we would not have had a country. It was clear that there weren't enough votes for the for the uh, Constitutional Convention, and there certainly weren't enough votes for a ratification of the Constitution if slavery was eliminated. So they basically never mentioned slavery in the Constitution, but well, they did say that after a certain date, immigrants, or really slaves, wouldn't be able to be coming to this country. I think it was 1808. And so uh, after that date, they weren't going to be able to come in, but they didn't use the word slavery. Uh, many of the founding fathers were slave owners, and I think six of the first eight presidents were slave owners. That was the original sin, and we've been living with this ever since. Um, it, you know, We had we the Civil War, which is what I call a stress test. We have many stress tests in our democracy. The ultimate stress test was the Civil War, where 3% of the population was basically killed uh, or lost their lives in one form or another. And I don't think we... Um, Ever have gotten uh, the ability to eliminate that racist, racial problem. So it's throughout the book that, that racial tensions and racial problems and racial inequities are part of our, our country's system. Hopefully, um, when my grandchildren are my age, we will have amazingly eliminated that problem, uh, hopefully sooner, but I don't think it's going to happen anytime uh,
0: soon. Uh, I mentioned some of the great Americans included here Madeleine Albright, who has been a guest here at uh, the Talk right. of the Hill, David McCullough, uh, uh, Ken Burns. Uh, people from all walks of life three that I found particularly interesting uh, Let's start with Cal Ripken a sports figures himself. So here's Baltimore's own Cal right. Ripken uh, who um, Broke Lou Gehrig's record for right. consecutive number of games uh, and uh, The streak of his but I found it interesting when he talked to you that he basically said everybody's got a streak in their own life Right that they can and a record that they can
1: yeah, he's, he's actually um, a role model in many ways. He's humble um, no scandals associated with him. I mean, there's no drug scandals or anything like that. No, any scandals. He was a very modest person who basically played every inning for more or less 17 years and, uh, in every game. And he broke the record and then he continued to break the record. And in the interview, um, he talks about, of course, when, when he broke the record, it was, you know, I think the president of the United States was there and it was a historic, uh, kind of event. But when he played another, um, I guess he played another 500 games, uh, before he decided to retire and one day, they're playing the Yankees, and he just they announced the starting lineup, and he's not in it <laughs> for the first time in you know 17 years. He's not in the starting lineup. So the Yankees finally figured out what was going on, and everybody gave a standing uh, applause to him because he had decided voluntarily to step down. Lou Gehrig had some uh, illnesses that really required him to step down. But um, Cal Ripken is a role model, and we need more and more role models. There aren't that many role models uh, anymore for young, young children. He's certainly a
0: good role model in my view. I love what he said, uh, that the secret was you just continue to push yourself through.
1: <laughs> well, that's true of all life. And yeah. uh, But he was a modest, unassuming person, and I didn't really know him, although I'm from Baltimore. I really didn't know him. I did this interview of him at the Smithsonian, and uh, very pretty much what you see is what you get. Uh, he's now dedicated the rest of his life to baseball mm-hmm. and uh, teaching youth uh, how to play baseball and so forth.
0: Uh, You interviewed David Blight, who wrote this incredible biography of Frederick Douglass. Again, local boy, right? Eastern Shore uh, and Baltimore and then Washington, D.C., lived on the hill, lived in Anacostia. Probably next to Martin Luther King Jr. had the greatest impact on civil rights in this country, you believe?
1: Yeah, he was the greatest uh, civil rights leader until Martin Luther King came along. And he was a man who amazingly didn't get assassinated because... You know, in those days, uh, you know, people who were fighting uh, against slavery who were ex-slaves. Um, they, they were, in many cases, they were lynched and had other kinds of uh, bodily harm done to them. And he, he basically mar- and he married a white woman for his second wife, and that was fairly scandalous at the time. And I would have thought, and he might have thought, that he was going to be killed for that. But he basically lived his life the way he wanted to do it. Incredible person. David Blight, who's a professor at Yale, did an incredible job of going through documents that nobody had ever seen before to talk about Frederick Douglass's life. And he did spend the remainder of his life in the last number of years uh, here.
0: We mentioned Sonia Sotomayor in the context of your conversation about civics and civic education. Uh, you also talked with her about the importance of immigration to this country and our immigration policy.
1: Yes, well, immigration is really what fuels this country, and it keeps our country vibrant. Uh, for a country to s- population to stay the same, A woman of childbearing age, on average, has to have 2.1 children. So in the United States right now, we're averaging 2.1 children for women of childbearing age. So our population would be stable and flat, um, but for the fact that we have immigration coming in and and that's growing the population. And I think that we often get some talented people coming into this country who do great things for the country. So immigration is important. But from 1925 until about 1965, for 40 years or so, we had a very discriminatory policy that basically didn't let people come in. For example, uh, Jews were discriminated against, and some of you may remember that when the uh, SS um, St. Louis was trying to come into the United States, we had uh, Jews during World War II, we turned them away. We turned that ship away, and about a third of those people wound up in, in concentration camps and were killed. So. We just didn't at the time the State Department didn't really think that Jews were appropriate people to come into the country and they had quotas and so forth. So it's a sad situation. We are a melting pot, but sometimes um, we haven't been as open about letting people in as we we should have been.
0: Michael Beschloss is one of my favorite historians, uh, one of our best historians. Uh, And you talked with him about January 6th and the insurrection and what you called, I believe, a stress test on our democracy um did we survive it and will we survive it
1: in the last couple years we've had two gigantic stress tests the biggest stress test in this country's history was a civil war but in our lifetime we've had other stress tests uh the vietnam war was a gigantic stress test i think watergate was a stress test for sure um george floyd was a stress test the murder of george floyd Um, i'd say black lives matter has been a stress test and a whole variety of and the fight for gender equality and 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 the right for people of different sexual preferences to be able to, to do what they want. That, these have been stress tests. But in the last two years or so, we've had two stress tests that were unbelievable. One was COVID, where more than 600,000 Americans died. Think about this. In World War II, we lost about 400,000 Americans. If you add up all the wars we've had together, a foreign wars, not counting the Civil War, we lost more in COVID in a shorter period of time than we lost in all of these wars. And as terrible as 9-11 was, uh, we lost about 3,000-plus Americans in that night, a staggering, that day, staggering. And everybody remembers where they were, no doubt, then. But 3,000 in one day. We've lost in about a year and a half 600,000 people, enormous stress test. The other stress test was the events of the election and January the 6th, and they're, they're related. On the election, um, you know, there was an effort by some to say that the election was stolen. Now, I dedicate the books to public servants who protect our democracy, and I should have just said to judges, but there weren't only judges. Sixty-five cases were filed, and sixty-five cases were thrown out of court. And you know, in another country, maybe judges would have not gone the way that these judges did, but these judges stood up and said there was no fraud. The only fraud was in the filings of the people who said there were fraud. There was no fraud. And so that was a real stress test for the country. And had uh, the Vice President of the United States said, look, I'm not making a decision here. I'm going to kick it over to the House of Representatives. Under the way our Constitution works, each state gets one vote if it goes to the House of Representatives. A majority of states are in the House of Representatives are Republican. So the Republicans would have all voted for Donald Trump, and the Democrats would have voted for um, Joe Biden, and we, the election would have been overturned, in my view, inappropriately. So I think it was a stress test. We survived because of the judges, public servants, election officials, and it's, it's, it's a real... Um, uh, strength of our system that we did so but in any other country I think the election could have gone a different way
0: the one overriding message that I got from the interviews that I've read so far is everybody feels upbeat these people uh, these Americans upbeat about the country upbeat about the uh, the right. future of the country uh, are you as optimistic as they are
1: people that have had luck in life and good fortune generally are optimistic so, you know, you, you look at my situation. I've made a fair amount of money. I've got lots of things that I'm doing that I'm interested in. It's hard for somebody like that to say I'm pessimistic. You know, people that are at the bottom of the economic and social strata, yeah, know, they, they can justifiably say they're pessimistic. No, I'm optimistic the country survived things that are worse than what we're going through now. We survived the Civil War, but we have to pull together. And right now our government is sclerotic. It doesn't really work very well. Uh, money is endemic. It's too, too, too important to the system. And I I hope that at some point we can get the country to work together again. When I worked on Capitol Hill, it wasn't perfect, but we had bipartisan legislation. Bipartisan legislation today is more or less a rarity. Uh, And and, and so I'm not happy with certain situations, but on the whole, I'd rather live in this country than any other country. On the whole, I'd rather live now than any other time in our country's history. And on the whole, I hope I get to live more years uh, because I'm now 72 years old and I'm doing what I call sprinting to the finish line. I'm trying to get as many things done before the brain collapses or the body collapses and you know it's all think about it you know you've had this body and this brain your whole life and you don't know when something's gonna check out and somebody's gonna say hey I'm tired of being part of you and I'm just gonna go away so I'm trying to make sure that these parts are well taken care of and they don't want to go away before I'm done with all my things
0: and that's it for this podcast and my interview with philanthropist David Rubenstein thank you so much for joining us thank you for listening And you know, if you enjoyed this interview, you'll really like David's new book, The American Experiment, a link to buy the books included for your convenience in the episode notes to this podcast. We'll be back Friday with this week's Reporters Roundtable. Until then, take care of yourself and come back for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. See you then.